Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Frank Ford, who is co-author of Happy Accidents, The Transformative Power of Yes and, At Work and in Life. Today we will discuss the transformative power of improv. Frank has had a successful career in the entertainment industry for the last 25 years and is one of the founding members and owner of Four Day Weekend, a comedy institution in Texas. He has also studied at the renowned Second City Conservatory in Chicago and taught advanced improvisation classes at the Four Day Weekend Training Center. Frank has appeared in numerous commercial spots, television shows, and films. In addition, he has been recognized for his original comedy reviews, comedy album, short films, and acting roles. In addition to performing in more than 5,000 shows and working with Fortune 500 companies throughout the world, Frank is also a popular keynote presenter on the speaker's circuit. Frank, welcome. Thank you so much, Elena. And wow, that bio sounds amazing. I can't wait to meet this guy. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) Right? (laughs) So let's start with something really easy to warm things up. What are we talking about when we say improv? It sounds like we all know what it is. Is it stand-up comedy? Is it more? Is it less? Tell us about that. All right. Well, improvisation for your listeners who may not have seen a live show, uh, it's kind of like the show Whose Line Is It Anyway? So improvisation is basically uh, a group or troupe uh, of people. So uh, there's a group of people that, that perform together on stage. And what happens is, is that you get audience suggestions, and then you make up scenes and songs uh, through improvisation. So everything is made up. Uh, it's kind of a fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants sort of comedy uh, versus stand-up, which is uh, one person uh, doing basically a monologue, and it's written material. So improvisation can be used for writing, ultimately. Uh, that's what the Second City does. You know, this is how their sketch shows get developed. But uh, improv in its purest form is just a glorified uh, form of brainstorming, basically. So you just get audience suggestions, and then you, you yes-end those ideas and suggestions into funny scenes and songs, at least in our case at uh, Four Day Weekend Comedy. That's what we do. Is it always comedy? Is, is it drama and comedy? Can you choose? Well, I'll tell you what. If, if you were to ask uh, Del Close... Uh, who has passed away, he, he's considered to be the godfather of improvisation. He would tell you that uh, comedy doesn't have to be funny. Uh, you know, comedy or humor is a byproduct of improvisation at times. Uh, but you can improvise scenes or, or do long-form versions of improvisation uh, in a format called The Herald, for instance, uh, where it can just be uh, a scene and there can be dramatic parts in it and, it and it doesn't have to get laughs necessarily. What we've done for the purposes of, of our business and our theater is we do uh, a shorter form version of improvisation and the byproduct of that is comedy. So, so we, we focus on, you know, making sure that, you know, we're getting laughs and, and doing all that kind of stuff through improvisation, but it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, funny. Um, but usually that's the association that people make with it because of the Groundlings and the Upright Citizens Brigade and Improv Olympic and the Second City and Four Day Weekend Comedy and Improv Asylum, amongst others. Uh, that's usually what people go to see improv for. And here's the interesting thing about it. Now, I am an improviser by trade. Uh, you know, I'm professionally, uh, you know, working as an improviser. However, Every single person, including you, Elena, are an, uh, uh, is an improviser. You're an improviser because you're improvising right now. This isn't scripted. You and I uh, didn't write a, a transcript or script out of this conversation. We're having it off the cuff, on the fly, by the seat of our pants. And so what we talk about in Happy Accidents is, look, If we start from sort of the understanding or paradigm that everybody is an improviser anyway, then how can you uh, make your improvisation, your daily improvisation, better as an individual, uh, as a family member, as a company? And that's really what Happy Accidents is about. It's coming from the, the idea or concept that everybody is an improviser. 
in the book, you talk about ways that improv can help you succeed at work, that there is a bridge between being able to improvise, as we're talking about in entertainment, and success at work. What can you tell us about that? All right. Well, we have uh, a lot of Fortune 500 companies, clients, CEOs, presidents come to us, and they hire us to deliver our yes and keynote and, and workshop. And depending on the company, there can be all sorts of different things that they need help with in terms of their corporate culture. There may be trust issues. Uh, they, they, may, uh, they may not have a sense of play uh, in the workplace. They want to talk about collaboration. They want to talk about adaptability. They want to be better listeners. And the great thing about improvisation, the way that we've learned it, is that it addresses all of those things. You know, we started – this show, gosh, coming up on 21 years now. And uh, we started in Fort Worth, uh, our first theater. We have a second one that just opened in Dallas. But we started 21 years ago, and it was only for a six-week run. Well, six weeks turned into six months, six months turned into six years, and six years turned into 21. And somewhere along the way, we needed a business philosophy because our, our business was growing by leaps and bounds. So we understood improv, but none of us are business majors. So along the way, as we were hiring a staff to work the bar, a staff of people to work the ticket booth in the theater, we had to come up with a business philosophy. And it occurred to us, you know, what works so well for us on stage, this philosophy of yes and active listening, being present, being in the moment, being positive, building on each other's ideas – uh, in improvisation at four day weekend, you know, when I take the stage, I'm not taking the stage selfishly. I'm not looking out for my own interests. Every time I take the stage, I'm looking out for you. So it's how can I make you look good? And, and when you take the stage or my partners take the stage, uh, they think, how can I make my fellow performers look good? So everybody takes the stage in a very unselfish, selfless way. And we thought, boy, you know, this is really work well for us on stage, what if we applied this to our life off stage, to our business model off stage? And we did. And lo and behold, uh, our business started to take off. And so um, I'll get into some of the details like active listening and what the SN philosophy is, but that's the sort of philosophy and ideas and concepts that we convey to our, our corporate clients. And they realize that, oh, there's a practical application to this stuff. Improvisation can work. Uh, at work or at home uh, or or for individual development. Um, so I'll I'll kind of you know burrow down or drill down to a more gran granular level there. But uh, but basically that's the overall thing. We adopted the yes the the improv philosophies, the principles and tenets of improvisation, and applied them to our business. How does this relate to? the rest of us in our daily lives at work, how can we take that success that you have modeled and apply it to our life and our work? All right. Well, here's the thing. You know, since you're already improvising, let's just start with that premise there. You can improvise in one of two environments, a positive environment or a negative environment. It's your choice. So if you approach it from the yes and philosophy, then that is a more uh, proactive positive, progressive approach. You know, the world right now, the default for everybody seems to be a negative no or no but. So we're trying to teach a yes then philosophy in a no but world. So for instance, at work, you know, uh, a lot of people in order to get ahead uh, at work or in their business subscribe to sort of this Machiavellian approach to, uh, to, to business, right? So they say, all right, you know, uh, I'm looking out for number one. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. I'm going to undermine whoever I need to undermine uh, to get ahead, uh, to climb the corporate ladder and step on whoever I need to step on to reach the top. And it doesn't have to be like that. Um, that's not really how we're hardwired. We're hardwired to be empathetic, uh, to collaborate, to work as a group, to help each other out. And the Machiavellian approach is learned behavior, right? So there's been a lot of programming for adults to kind of, be in this dog-eat-dog -dog mentality. So yes and helps you retrain your brain at work to approach it from a 
I'm looking out for everybody else or I'm trying to help the company or the group as a whole versus just myself individually. And the good news is, is that if everybody is doing that, if everybody's trying to help each other out, then guess what? We all look good in, in the end. So, you know, if you try to practice yes and say at work to create a culture, and, and I mean not just give it lip service, but create a culture uh, at a corporation or in a business environment where people really feel that their voices or ideas are being heard, um, then the yes and philosophy uh, will create ideas, out-of-the-box ideas, out-of-left-field ideas that you would have normally never thought of uh, because you're not drowning out those that are more introverted or, or not as willing to speak up. You know, uh, a lot of times in business, you'll have the person who is the loudest or the know-it-all, and they get most of the attention. Um, but there's a lot of people in corporations that maybe don't, you know, speak up as much and they're a little bit quieter and, you know, they don't want to stand out. But their ideas are amazing, just just as valid as anybody else's. And what a yes and philosophy in a work culture does is that it encourages or fosters or nurtures those people to have their voices heard uh, as well. And the other thing about it is and we talk about this a lot to companies, you know, at four day weekend. We, uh, I believe I saw this on a motivational poster somewhere, but, you know, we get to go to work. We don't have to go to work. We get to go to work. And the reason we get to go to work and we love going to work is because it's a lot of fun. So there's this underlying sense of play and enjoyment or joy that goes into what we do every day. And we try to make it fun not only as the owners of the company, but for other people that work for us. Uh, and we have a very, very low turnover rate at four day weekend because people love it. They get there and they say, this is a really fun work environment. Um, and we sort of keep it positive and the yes and philosophy really helps us, uh, to do that. And I can give you a couple examples here of how we use yes and to sort of overcome some problems that we had with our business in the past and then how we've also worked with other companies to help them sort of, uh, overcome some of their problems as well. You talk about having an attitude that isn't just self-centered. What about if you're in an environment, in a work environment certainly, where everyone is, else is self-centered? How do you deal with that? Well, here, here's the thing about that, and, and that's a great question. You know, it, it takes far more people uh, it takes a lot more people to create sort of this negative environment versus uh, a, a few people that uh, have a positive uh, sort of a attitude or perspective on, on work. So what we say is, is that a lot of times when we get work with companies, there'll usually be uh, the executives or the leadership teams there, um, the managers, the CEO, the president, what have you. And we tell them, look, if you – start to practice this and, and approach it from a top-down sort of perspective and, and, and really let your employees know that, that you're going to try to implement some of these practices, um, th then they'll, they'll adopt it. They'll, they'll turn around from sort of this, this negative, selfish, self-centered uh, approach to more of a collaborative team approach, a yes-end approach. And it's infectious. Once you get a group of people sort of moving in that direction, it catches on like wildfire because that's how we're hardwired, truly. Uh, the other way is antithetical to who we are. Uh, you, you know, again, like I said, it's, it's learned behavior. And we've been able to get into companies and say, you know, try this out for a while. See how it works. And look. What I'm saying here about Yes End is that it's a philosophy, okay? It's not a panacea. It's not a cure-all. It's a philosophy. And just like working out in the gym, you've got to practice it. Like, you really have to practice it individually or as a, a company uh, within your company uh, corporate culture. Um, you can't go to the gym and just work out one day and go, all right, that's it. My New Year's resolution's over. I worked out once. I'm in shape. I know not. a lot of people who do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Well, then, yeah, you know that they're, they're not really in shape. You know, if that's what you need to tell yourself to feel better, uh, that's one thing. But you do have to work, work at it, and especially now because, again, like I said, programming has been so strong 
to sort of default to this negative no, but, you know, and we understand that in life, of course you have to say no. The only thing we ask our corporate clients or of each other is that you make sure that it's a considerate no. It's a thought through no. It's a no that isn't a reactionary no or a knee-jerk no, uh, meaning, you know, you may have tried something and you went down this path and it failed and you're trying to shave some time off of somebody else's efforts. So you tell them, hey, no, uh, and here's why, and, and then tr- let's try to yes end a work workaround. I mean, we understand that you have to say no in life. You know, if you have children and, and your child comes up to you and says, hey, mom, dad, can I go play uh, – Ball uh, on the freeway in traffic, you wouldn't say, yes, and wear camouflage and go at night so it's harder for the cars to see you. You would not do that. What you would say is, yeah, and let's go to the park during the day where it's safer and, and fun. So there's always a workaround with, with yes, yes, and. Um, the thing about no is, is that when you say no in life, no gives you the illusion of control and shuts the door to possibilities. Whereas yes and means, yes, you have to relinquish some control, of course, but it opens the door to all kinds of possibilities. And if you look at the economic and financial landscape uh, that is out there right now, adaptability is key. There's a lot of businesses that are going through these seismic shifts and changes right now, and adaptability is the key. How can you be more adaptable? Well, improvisation is all about adaptability. We never know what the audience is going to say to us. We never know what's going to be thrown our way. But improv has trained us to be more flexible and adaptable using the yes and philosophy. So, so we're very quick on our feet and able to find a workaround regardless of what the problem is. And and I think that's resonated with a lot of people and and a lot of companies to say, yeah, you know what? You know, I work for this this magazine and, you know, everything is going from print to digital and social media. You know, how do we handle this shift in technology uh, regarding our industry? And we talk about things like that. Like I said, depending on the corporate client, we, we tailor our keynote to sort of address the specific concerns they have and give them exercises and things they can do within their company uh, to practice with each other to help them uh, address those concerns. Does this approach find a warm home across corporate cultures, across cultures in general? What is your experience? Are there corporate cultures where the door just slams on the yes before you get to the and? Are there cultures, as in different ethnicities, where this happy approach, positive approach, just can't find a hold? You know, what's interesting is that I'm going to say not no, because this has been the fastest growing part of our business since roughly 2008, 2009. And I think just because of the climate now, a lot of people are really looking for different ways to approach life and and or work. And our message of Yes End has really resonated with them because, you know, they look at us and, hey, we're a group of guys that 1997 uh, put 700 bucks a piece in and uh, we started a show, an improv comedy show in Fort Worth, and we were able to yes end our way to small business of the year, uh, the key to the city, uh, entrepreneurs and residents at the TCU Neely School of Business, which is a top flight business school in the country. Uh, we yes ended our way to a, a keynote to Congress, uh, the President of the United States. I, I mean, how did how did this group from Fort Worth? Yes, send their way to Congress and the President of the United States. And if they could do that, well, what can we, this company with millions of dollars and thousands of employees, yes, send our way to? So it's resonated with them because it's a more positive approach, uh, uh, going at things in a yes and way. It really has resonated with them. We have not had any company, especially recently, say, yeah, I don't know about this positive yes-end approach to life and work. I don't know if that's going to work out for me. I mean, if you're saying that, you're the no person. And uh, But the truth is, 
most people really, really, really are yes end people or want to be yes end people. So, it, no, uh, we have not run into any uh, any sort of pushback on that. If anything, it's been quite the opposite. It's been embraced. It's really resonated with people. And it's resonated so much that, like, within the past few years, our corporate clients came to us and said, yeah, man, this is great. We really love this keynote, these workshops. We love what you did for us. Have you guys ever thought about writing a book to get this out to other people? And that was really the impetus for the book was, you know, our fans, our friends, family, and, and especially the corporate clients were saying, hey, can you put this down uh, in, in the written form or, or, or the written words somewhere where this can get out to people or we can, you know, buy books for everybody? Because, you know, every company, too, like, they'll bring us in. But like working out, they'll bring us back because they need a little tune-up or a reminder or refresher keynote or workshop. But the book was a great thing because it's a leave behind that they can take and sort of just reference the book and kind of go through it. So uh, because the response was overwhelmingly positive, that's really what led to writing the book. So, yeah, it's been <laughs> it's been nothing but positive for, uh, since we started talking about it officially like, around 2008, 2009. What does the title of the book, Happy Accidents, refer to? Ah, all right. Well, look, in life, uh, in our opinion, there are no right or wrong answers. There's just higher and lower percentage choices, right? So if you look at it that way, you know, then you can, there's wiggle room there. So even the lowest percentage choice that you make or a company makes can be yes-ended into the greatest out-of-the-box, out-of-left-field idea that no one's ever heard of. Uh, so given that there are no right or wrong answers, higher and lower percentage choices only, we don't see mistakes. We see we see what seem to be mistakes as happy accidents, okay? So we don't look at mistakes as a barrier or hurdle or obstacle. Um, we see them as happy accidents that are opportunities. For instance, um, you remember the financial collapse in 2008, don't you? <laughs> well, of course, the Great Recession. Yes, the Great Recession, right. So a lot of our – one of the revenue streams for our business back in 2008 was corporate entertainment, right? And so a lot of companies would hire us, and, and they do now, again, but they would hire us then to come out and we would host – their awards banquets or do private shows for them or MC events or do man on the street stuff. And in 2008, we were on the road uh, in, in Phoenix, Arizona. We were doing a show for a banking software company when the front page of the newspaper came out while we're at the gig that said Lehman Brothers collapses. <laughs> okay. So all of a sudden after that gig, a lot of, if you'll recall, a lot of companies, because of, of the taxpayer bailout, they started to tighten the purse strings on what was deemed uh, entertainment or frivolous expenditures or spending. Um, you know, a few months after that in the paper, there were some companies that had these parties, and there was a lot of pushback and blowback uh, to that because they thought, hey, wait, we just bailed your company out. What are you doing throwing this lavish party with caviar and ice sculptures and all of this kind of stuff? So the companies heard that, reacted to it, and they tightened their purse strings. Well, that meant that one of our big revenue streams at four-day weekend went away, corporate entertainment. Now, we still had all of our employees – we still had all of our operating costs. We still had our theater that had to be open and, and do a show. And this giant revenue stream just, poof, went away, gone. So we now had to come up with a yes-end solution. Now, if you're a negative or no culture or a yes-but culture or a no environment, man, you're going to be in trouble. But if you're a yes-end culture like we are, we said, okay, all right, this is terrible. This is a terrible thing that happened to these businesses. It's a terrible thing that happened to the country. It, it's, it's, it's rough on our business. How are we going to find a yes-end workaround to keep the business going in a positive direction, create some new revenue streams to keep 
paying everybody, you know, what, what we owe them and to keep the theater open. And what we came up with was something that I had experience with having come from corporate America before I left corporate America to do four day weekend full time as an entrepreneur. And that was there wasn't always money for corporate entertainment per se within a company. However, there was always money for continuing education. And continuing education came in the form of classes, motivational speakers, books, keynotes, workshop, team building. Well, that was when we started to say, okay, maybe we can come up with a keynote. And the keynote information came from our training center. So we all taught students at the four-day weekend training center. And so we were taking just what we taught in our classes uh, through the four-day lens and perspective and started to apply it to our corporate clients. And that really was the financial collapse, although it would be seen as this horrible thing and mistake, which it was, but we thought that it kind of ended up, especially looking back on it, was a happy accident for our business because we were able to develop the keynote and the workshop for our corporate clients out of that. And the keynote and the workshop ultimately became the book that you just mentioned today, Happy Accidents, the Transformative Power of Yes and Working in Life. Now, that would have never happened had we not yes ended that seemingly what was considered a mistake or a horrible thing, in, uh, it, but instead looked at it as a happy accident, and it became the book that we're talking about here here today. And that's just a, an example of what we did at Four Day uh, to find a yes end workaround. You know, they say necessity is the mother of invention. So uh, we were in need of something. <laughs> we needed something here, and that's what we came up with. And it was yes end that helped us do it. You have a different definition for ROI. You call that return on improvisation. Tell us a little bit about that, if you would. Okay, so return on improvisation is, and this is sort of the metrics by which we measure, uh, say, how a company is doing using the yes and philosophy. You know, so there's a lot of uh, companies now that will have these like rating cards. Uh, if you do a private show or a keynote, they'll have the employees rated. And what we'll do is with some clients, some clients are perennial clients, annual clients, uh, and, and we'll sort of gauge, you know, things like, uh, you know, happiness in, in, in the workplace. You know, for instance, we did uh, uh, a yes and workshop with this hospital, huge hospital, uh, and they were ranked last in patient service, customer service, and in employee satisfaction. So they came to us and they said, man, you know, we got this report, you know, we, we, we were ranked dead last against uh, other hospitals in, in, in our area. You know, we really want to turn this around. We want to be better to our patients, better to our customers, better to our employees. So what we did was, is this is a very specific example where we said, okay, well, let's go through, like, identify what the problems are. We have every corporate client fill out a questionnaire. Um, and so they do that, and they sort of identify the problems. And then we tailor the workshop and exercises to address those specific things. Well, that, for instance, was that was they wanted to see their ranking go up. And so we helped them come up with some exercises that they could do internally um, that would help them do that. And lo and behold, you know, about 10 months later, near the end of the year, um, the chief marketing officer uh, came to a show and she said, you know, we, we implemented and practiced the exercises um, and the yes and philosophy. And we went from dead last to number one. Like it really flipped the script for them on that. So that was a specific example with a hospital where they took some of the exercises uh, that we had uh, and were able to raise up uh, in the rankings. But again, it's, it's you know, is, is the culture a yes in culture, um, happiness uh, or sense of play in the workplace, um, things like active listening. Um, are, are, you, are you working better as a team? Are you collaborating better? Um, it, is there not only a top-down sort of line of communication, but a bottom-up line of communication that's open and transparent that allows uh, people to, to 
filter or feed their ideas in, into the system. You know, those are some of the benchmarks, depending on what the company is, that we'll, we'll use to evaluate sort of where they are with the yes and, and philosophy. So that would be your return on improvisation. So, so for them to go from dead last to number one, their return on improvisation, well, obviously, it, it was a resounding success, right? Um, and, and then other people will have companies that will come in, and, and they'll be like mergers. Like we deal a lot with uh, corporate mergers, whether it's an airline or, or some other company. Um, they will come to us, and they'll say, hey – you know, these two cultures are, are coming together. There are trust issues. You know, company A doesn't necessarily trust company B. Or within a company, there'll be groups that have to work better together. Like they'll say, you know, well, sales and operations uh, aren't, aren't getting along. And those return on improvisation is, is when we'll go in and say, okay, well, here's things that sales can do. Here's things that, uh, that the operations group can do and, and, and then measure, you know, are they working better together? Or with a merger, have you developed a better sense of trust uh, after the merger through more open lines of communication? Those would also be uh, re returns on improvisation. And, and we usually follow up with those companies to see, um, you know, how they're doing or they'll come in for, like I said, a, a tune-up. And that's, that's kind of what the second book is going to be, our follow-up book to Happy Accidents is going to be a book of case studies and testimonials of companies that have used Yes and since the publication of the book. And we'll put those those examples in there so then people can go, oh, yeah, okay, this business is sort of like my business or or this worked for this individual in, in, in their relationship with their coworkers or family. So that's the follow-up book. And, and we'll probably have case studies that uh, delve into more detail on the return on improvisation or ROI as we use it. Having a positive attitude and saying yes, as you suggest in the book, and hearing your very positive tone as we're talking, can give people the impression that it is something that you can fake. It's something that you can copy. But one of the things that you address in the book is the importance of being authentic. Would you tell us about that, please? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think it was so someone who said, you know, always, you know, when you're around people, be sincere. And if you can fake sincerity, then then, then you're going to be doing all right. And if you can't fake sincerity, you can't fake passion. You don't want to be disingenuous or inauthentic uh, with people. Um, you know, we always say, for instance, you know, and, and corporations uh, will do this a lot. Um you know, I remember back when I was working in corporate America, they said, okay, all right, everybody, there's no more managers and no more subordinates. And we were like, what? No more managers, no more subordinates. No, no. Now there's going to be coaches and players. Okay, coaches and players. But the coaches are still management, right? And, and the players are still subordinates, right? And – a lot of people – look, employees aren't stupid. You know, sometimes when a company says, you know, all right, we're going to stop using the word manager and we're going to replace it with coaches and we're going to stop using the word subordinate and we're going to replace it with players, people know that that's just window dressing. That's just lip service. It doesn't mean anything. You know, you can say that till the cows come home. But until you mean it, like if you're saying, okay, by being – a coach and a player or a player's coach, and that you're leveling the playing field for everybody, that you're creating equal opportunities for communication and advancement within a company. If that's what you're saying, for real, then your actions speak louder than words. You can't fake that. So we always just say, you know, if you're going to do this, really do it. Why not? It works, number one. Two, you'll be a better person and a better company for doing it. Why, why not do it? What's the hold up? And so anytime you're inauthentic or you're trying to fake sincerity, uh, people sniff that out. They know that it's a bunch of malarkey, right? So, so we tell people, especially the leadership and management, hey, mean it. If you're going to do this, do what you say you're going to do. Really foster this. Don't just give it lip service. It, it, it won't stick. 
how can you be authentic if the yes and yes attitude doesn't come to you naturally? There are people whose nature is not necessarily in line with that, or perhaps, as you said earlier, who have learned some of the negative attitudes, some of the very aggressive competitiveness. But either way, they're not automatically in that positive place, and they're sitting there thinking, well, yeah, but how can I be positive when I don't really feel that way, and at the same time, still be authentic? All right. Well, well, well here's the thing. Now, and again, it, it's do you come at life thinking that deep down most people are good people, or do are you one of those people that go come at life thinking most people are bad people? Uh I think most people, including myself, approach life that I think most people, not all people, there's good in everybody, and there's also a yes end in everybody. Like I said, you know, that's learned behavior. It's interesting because the higher up the food chain you go within a company, the more you're rewarded for saying no. Um, But the lower down the food chain you are, the easier it is for you to do yes end. But it's interesting. We've done this Yes End workshop with kids, right? And what was fascinating was uh, we'll ask, like, for instance, a group uh, of adults uh, at a corporation in our keynote. We'll say, how many people here are artists or, or painters? Raise your hand. And maybe one, two, or three hands will go up. Now, we have asked that question to a room full of kids. And, Elena, do you know how many hands go up when we ask that to a room full of kids? No. All of them. Every kid hands, uh, all their hands go up when we say, who here is a painter? Who can paint? Who's an artist? Every kid raises their hand. Why? Well, because life hasn't programmed them or beaten it out of them or told them that they're not painters. I didn't ask the room full of adults are you Picasso? Are you Monet? I said, can you paint? Are you a painter? Can you dip a brush and paint and put it on a canvas? Maybe even a roller and a, and a paint uh, tray and roll it on a wall? The thing about my point is, is that there is that child or kid, that idealistic, optimistic person within all of us. We were all kids at one time, and we all looked out the window and we daydreamed. Now, when you daydream, you're like, ah, someday I'm going to be an astronaut and walk on the moon. You don't look out a window as a kid and daydream and, and, and go, ah, someday I'm going to try to be an astronaut, but I'll probably fail the NASA entrance exam and uh, never make it. So, oh, well, screw that idea. No, you don't do that as a kid. Why? That's not daydreaming. Daydreaming is looking at the endless possibilities in life. So from my perspective, everybody's been a kid and everybody had that optimistic uh, perspective or standpoint on life at one point in time. But somewhere along the way, it got beaten out of us as adults or programmed to be, we got programmed to be different. And you know who judges the person the most? Every one of those people, when they hear that every kid's hand goes up, when they say that they're an artist and then they don't raise their hand because They don't think they're an artist or they don't think they can paint. Well, guess what? The biggest judgment that's being placed on you is by you. If you tell yourself that, I'm not a painter, I'm not a poet, I'm not an entrepreneur, Ah, I'll never be any of those things. Well, guess what? You won't, right? Uh, It's the old Henry Ford quote, you know, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. Right. So if we're coming from the foundation that, hey, we, we had this optimistic perspective at one point in time and somewhere along the way, society uh, or, or adulthood beat it out, beat it out of us or we judged ourselves uh, too harshly along the way. Well, then this is now just saying, hey, look, it's never too late to hit the reset button on your attitude. Flip the script. You can do it today. And it's free. It doesn't cost anything. All you got to do is flip the script. 
It, it begins and ends with you. And if you get enough individuals doing that and believing in that, well, then those individuals sort of come together. They cluster together because the laws of attraction are positive attracts positive and negative attracts negative. Once you get a group of people who are starting to believe in themselves and believe in each other, and now you've got this infectious yes-end culture going, well, there's no stopping it. Then there's no end to what you can do. But it takes the individual to remind themselves of that optimism they had back in the day and sort of recapture it back. And the yes and our philosophy is a way for them to sort of maybe hit reset or jumpstart that positivity uh, for them again. You talk in the book about how being a good listener makes you a good communicator. Would you tell us about that? Yes. Uh, improvisation, when we're on stage, uh, and we get a suggestion. Um, we don't have time to judge it. You have to be present in the moment. We have to take that idea, and we have to yes-end it into something. Well, part of being able to yes-end something is I know it's my turn to speak on stage when my partner is done talking. And in improv, every line means something. So I have to not only wait and listen intently or actively listen to my partner, but then the end part, the A and D part of yes end, is that I have to build on his or her pertinent information. And this requires active listening. A lot of people in life, if you're in a conversation, uh, look, there's a lot of ways to say no in life, okay? Uh, you can say no. Uh, you can say yes, but. Yes, but, yes, but is a nice no. Uh, but is an acronym in our world for behold the underlying truth. So, for instance, Elena, if you said, Frank, I really enjoyed our interview, but I thought you went on a little too long about some things. Forget the first part. You really enjoyed the interview. Focus on the, uh, I thought you went on a little too long. Uh, so, so we have to, we have to listen, right, to each other. So, so those, those are some of the tools then like listening and yes ending that, uh, that we try to tell people, okay, this is how you can be a better communicator by listening. You've got to listen because how else are you going to build on the pertinent information? And you don't want to multitask either. You know, multitask. We used to do meetings where, you know, I'd be sending an email, a text while we're on the phone. And our phone calls, weekly phone call on Monday would be an hour long. Well, once you start to narrow your focus and put away your social media, don't email, don't text while talking, don't be working out in the gym while you're trying to do something. If you laser focus and actively listen, that meeting has been reduced to 20 minutes now. You know, multitasking means that you just do a lot of different things in a very average way. So when you're an active listener, you improv trains your brain to really hear what people are saying. And there have been a lot of people within our company that are not performers, are not owners, uh, that have come to us and said, hey, what about this idea for the show? Or what about this idea for the business? Well, if you're not an active listener, you'll tune those things out. But if you are an active listener, you'll be more open to those ideas. And you'll be able to communicate with people better because you'll have heard everything that they've had to say, consider it, and then yes, and it build on the pertinent information. And you can't do that unless you're an active listener. You know, a lot of times people... They're in a conversation, and they're looking at the person. Like I said, there's a lot of ways to say no, you know, arms folded, uh, eyes rolling. Or you're just looking the person in the eye and thinking to yourself, God, I can't wait for this person to shut up. Man, if this person would shut up, I would be able to say my really brilliant idea. I'm going to blow their mind as soon as they shut up. I can't wait for them to stop talking. Oh, my God, it's going to be great. So while you're doing that, you're missing everything that that person is trying to tell you or to say. Because you've got your perspective, your selfish perspective or idea that you want to cram in there. And that's not the way improv works. Improv trains you to be quiet, to listen, to absorb, to learn, to always be a student. And by doing that, you're able to be a better communicator in the end.
In the book, you also discuss the concept that there aren't mistakes. You also talked about it earlier in our conversation, that there are choices that are more desirable or less desirable. Would you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, yeah. I, I, again, it goes back to the uh, higher and, and lower percentage choices, right? I, I mean, um, it's something – look, you always want to try to put your best foot forward. You know, when I take the stage, not only am I uh, setting out to make those guys look good, but more importantly, I'm not setting them up for failure. Um, you know, I would never go and take the stage and undermine somebody or try to set them up with something that was difficult or hard on stage to make them look bad or, or to look stupid. You know, and so, you know, part of that is, is that, you know, in life, you, you, you want to err on the higher percentage choices, you, you know, limit your, your mistakes, you know, create the most uh, window, the largest window for, for opportunity. But having said that, look, low percentage choices are going to be to be made. You know, for instance, there was an example of, of, a, of a low percentage choice in our business. Um, I remember when smartphones started to have video and great cameras on them like they, they do today. This is several years back. And we, being theater snobs in some respects, um, thought we would see people on their phones, you know, uh, te uh, texting on their phones or, you know, typing. And, and we thought it was really, really rude. And so we would tell people, put your phones away. Don't do that. Don't do this. We even created a slideshow that said, no more smartphones in the theater. How dare you? This is theater. And that, as it turned out, was a very, very low percentage choice on our part. And I'll tell you why. We at Four Day always talk about honoring each other's perspectives, all right? So you have a perspective, uh, Elena's perspective, and you're, you're an expert in a lot of things that I'm not, and you have a very different perspective on things that I don't. And if I honor your perspective and you honor my perspective, then we're going to start to uh, consider all perspectives, and it's going to broaden our scope or spectrum of are our net, so to speak, of ideas. So we made a low percentage choice. We were telling people, put your smartphones away. How dare you? Uh, and we even created a slideshow saying as much. Well, we as performers on the stage, our perspective is uh, sort of like a worm's eye view of the audience. We're looking at them as performers. Now, I have been in over 5,000 shows, right? My perspective has always been from the stage and seeing an audience. I have been in over 5,000 shows, but you know what? I've never seen a show. I've only performed in them. Well, lo and behold, our technical and lighting director, Chantry, he sits up in the booth behind the audience while the show's going on. From his crow's nest, from his bird's eye perspective, he didn't see people being rude in the theater. You know what he saw? He saw people texting and tweeting about how much they loved the show. He saw them checking in on Facebook, giving us five-star reviews during the show. Now, we were telling people, put your smartphones away. And he saw them doing great things, giving us great reviews. So he was able to come to us and basically say, hey, guys, I think you're making a low percentage choice here. <laughs> And here's why. Now, being a yes and culture, we were open to Chantry's input. And so we listened to him. And what we did was, as opposed to chastising them, we embraced the social media technology. Now we have a segment in our show called Camera Roll. And at intermission, we ask people, well, go on your phone and pick a photo. And we'll post it after intermission. And we'll meet the person. We'll talk to the person, interview the person whose photo it is. And we'll improvise a scene based on that. So they post all of these photos to our Facebook. Well, what do you think that did for our traffic and likes and reviews on Facebook? They went through the roof. And how do you think all of that helped us down the road? Well, as we were shopping for publishers on the East and West Coast, 
one of the questions that they all asked was, what's your presence like on social media? And we were happy to say, it's great. Now, that was the ripple effect of a low percentage choice that we were making, that we were able to honor somebody else's perspective, Chantry in this case, and yes, and his idea or thoughts into the greatest out of left field, out of the box idea that we would have never come up with ourselves, which was incorporating the camera roll and social media into the show, which in turn resulted into high traffic on our social media, which in the end resulted into acquiring a publisher in the form of Wiley and Sons who published our book. So that was a low percentage choice. Yes, ended into a really great idea. (laughs) One of the exercises that you recommend in the book is gift giving. And gift giving can be more complicated than you would expect because in some cultures and for some people, accepting a gift is something that makes them feel uncomfortable. They feel that if they accept something, then they have to give something in return. Um, How do you go about doing that in the exercise? Okay. Well, the gift giving, the way we talk about it, uh, let's see. How can I put this? Okay. Um, Let's say – uh, like, I'm going to use the, the, the North Carolina, the Tar Heels basketball team. One of the things they do is that whoever makes the shot or, or dunks the ball, when, when they do that, if you'll notice during the games, they'll look at the other players and point at them as, uh, as to say thank you. Why are they saying thank you? Because the person who dunked the ball – and got all the cheers from the uh, crowd for dunking the ball, he knows that he was given gifts down the court in the form of passes to make the dunk. He knows the dunk doesn't happen without all the gift giving in the form of passes down the lane or in the paint to make the dunk. That's the gift. That is a basketball player's gift to another player. And that person may have made the dunk this time, but down the road it'll be another player because everybody else is passing to them or or, or guarding or what have you. Those are the gifts that I'm talking about. Uh, Gifts don't come necessarily in the physical form of a box with wrapping paper and a bow on it. Gifts can come in many forms, meaning that you're setting people up for success. That's the thing. That's the gift. So when I'm on stage, I'm not going to – make an arcane reference or say something that's going to confuse my performers on stage. No. In improvisation, gift giving, for instance, in our case on stage is, I may set up the joke and one of my fellow improvisers will deliver the punchline. Now, they're going to get all the laughs, but my improv partner on stage, even though they delivered the punchline, like the uh, North Carolina basketball players, we always point to each other as we walk off stage as to say, thank you for setting me up, for giving me that gift. I would have never been able to deliver that punchline if you had not played the straight role or straight man role in that scene. I could not have delivered the punchline without you. That's the kind of gift giving that I'm talking about. Setting each other up for success in life, whether it's your family or coworkers, versus setting them up for failure or sabotaging them. And it's interesting because sometimes you'll see that within our workshops, we always ask people, we say, all right, you know, (laughs) that last exercise, uh, now be honest, raise your hands. How many caught yourself trying to set your partner up? And they all laugh because, yes, they were trying to sabotage their partner. And then we say, for success. And then, of course, the hands go down sheepishly. And the point we're trying to make there is, is that the gift giving comes in the form of setting people up for success. And that can be uh, done in a lot of different ways. What tips, what suggestions would you share with our listeners, Frank, that they can take back to their work environment, to their home, to their lives, 
to apply some of these principles that we have been discussing? And where can they get more information in addition to the book, of course? All right. Well, I'll tell you what. First of all, uh, here's what I would say to everybody out there that's going to get this book or just if if they're going to listen to this interview and and approach life. I'm going to ask of your listeners the same thing that a teacher uh, asked of me a long time ago, being a student in his class. He said, Frank, the only thing I ask of you is that you allow yourself to be a student. And at the time, I was young, and I thought, well, by default, I am a student. I'm in your class. But as I grew and began to understand what he meant by that and got to know him better, what he meant was allow yourself to be a student forever in life. You know, you're never done learning. You know, anyone who claims to be a know-it-all, spoiler alert, you're not. And and let's just say for the sake of argument you are, that means you've creatively and intellectually flatlined at a very early age. Who wants to work with this person who's flatlined, who already has a ceiling on everything they could possibly learn? It's not even true. So you've got to approach life as a student, a student of life. We were in New York City promoting the book uh, last week or a couple weeks ago, and it was Interesting, I was asked, they gave me the open-ended phrase of learning is, and you have to fill it in. And I thought about my teacher and, and him telling me to be a student of life, and I came up with learning is forever, and then some. Meaning, at the end, when it's all said and done, if you've lived your life trying to be a student, you will have learned a lot but you will have not learned it all. And that's kind of the whole thing. And if you approach life from that humble and modest perspective of being a student and constantly willing to learn, then you're going to be open to the ideas in the book, which then you can take with you and practice, of which are saying yes to some things in your life versus no. You know, think about that. You know, maybe keep a little log. You know, say yes to three things that you normally wouldn't say yes to and see what happens. Keep a journal about it. Track it. Listen more. Wait till people are done. Listen to what people are saying. Be an active listener. And if you approach life without fear, this would be the other thing. In improvisation, we do not know where we're going. We only know where we've been. But we're willing to step into the unknown together because of the trust that we built up, knowing that we're going to make each other look good and not fail. And here's the thing, Elena, and this is what I would say to all the people listening right now, especially if you get the book. Life is all about the leap. It's not about the landing. You're going to land somewhere. But if you live a trepidatious, fear-based life, well, You're surviving, but you're not thriving, as they say. Life is all about the leap. You have to be willing to take chances, especially if you're an entrepreneur. Uh, In life, at home, at work, whatever, what do you have to lose? You're going to land somewhere anyway. And if you're going to make the leap, why not do it in a positive yes-end way? That's what I would say to them. And if you want to find out more information, you can get the book on Amazon.com. And it's Happy Accidents, The Transformative Power of Yes and Networking in Life. Or you can go to the four-day weekend website, and that's F-O-U-R spelled out, dayweekend.com, fourdayweekend.com. And all the information is there as well. Are there other sources of information beyond your website and book where people can learn more strategies about these tactics and uh, the process that you have embraced? Um, yes, I, I think that there are some uh, other people that may have uh, written or talked about um, the yes and philosophy. What's, what's unique about our book or our perspective is that it's through our lens. It, it, it's an autobiography of, of our successes, our failures, and, and how we used yes and to overcome them and, and then how other people can do that as well. But But yeah, if people... You know, if, if you look at, at – there's some people like Alan Alda, uh, of all people, teaches uh, improv uh, acting workshops, um, which are great. Um, 
there, there's a, a biography. We just had an interview with the woman, her biographer out of New York, uh, 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 Viola Spolin, um, who, you know, came up with a lot of the uh, uh, improv exercises or games um, that everybody has sort of adopted uh, and, and sort of put packaged into their own sort of a thing. Del Close, uh, A Truth in Comedy, uh, is a good book uh, for people that want to learn a little bit more about, you know, uh, Del Close and the Herald and sort of the approach to improv that way. So there are some other resources out there that people can go to. I'm sure if you type in yes and improvisation, you'll see uh, a litany of, of them. It's a good philosophy no matter who's talking about it. <laughs> Thank you, Frank, for joining us from the Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas area. Well, thank you so much, Elena. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me on as guest. Thank you. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Frank Ford, who is co-author of Happy Accidents, The Transformative Power of Yes and at Work and in Life, who discussed the transformative power of improv. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.